Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. The problem with Christianity is its renunciation of life. At least that's what the 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche thought. He's famous for saying God is dead, and in books like Beyond Good and Evil, he sought to sweep away the continuing influence of Christianity to establish a more natural sense of morality, where strength is virtue and weakness isn't. This Holy Week, Cameron and I are going to talk about Nietzsche's critique of Christianity and how that criticism is powerfully answered by the event we celebrate on Easter Sunday, the Resurrection. I was fascinated to discover recently an interesting paper about Friedrich Nietzsche, who is famous, of course, for his pronouncement that God is dead and we have killed him. When I was in grad school, in our modern thought class, we had to read a lot of Nietzsche so much that I jokingly referred to the class as Intro to Nietzsche. And it could be a little bit depressing to read too much, but I came away really fascinated and believing that the the way that Nietzsche is often dismissed out of hand and caricatured is really unfair to the scope of his work and to his influence on the modern world. And I recently came across a paper that I thought illustrated this really well that was critical of Nietzsche where it was appropriate, but also kind of held out some hope that we could learn from his critique as well. And so I've asked the author of that paper to join me here in the commentary, and the author happens to be Cameron Brooks, my friend and fellow commentator. Cameron, how did you come to write about Nietzsche? Or actually, before I ask you that, how did you come to read Nietzsche? An excellent question. So this paper was for a seminary class, actually, that I I took at Princeton Seminary. It was a PhD-level course, in fact, with... Dr. Gordon Graham, and the class was called Hume and Nietzsche. And so it was on David Hume, the first half of the class, and the second half was all Nietzsche. And we read, I mean, almost all of his stuff for that class. And this was kind of the culminating paper for that class. I think a lot of people would find it surprising that in seminary you would read Friedrich Nietzsche and David Hume. Uh, Hume, of course, is famous for his skepticism. Uh, he's more rationalistic. Mm-hmm. Nietzsche is famous for, I, I don't even think it does justice to, to call it skepticism <laughs> because he really wants to sweep away the vestiges of Christianity. But um, a lot of people would say that reading authors like this is what led them out of faith. And yet what you've actually written is a paper about why, let's say, Uh, Christianity actually has resources to answer Mm -hmm. those critiques, specifically that that Nietzsche hates Christianity, but Christianity actually can, I guess, is it fair to say, answer his critique on its own terms, something like that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I wanted to do was show that 
in a sense, he, he misunderstands Christianity and that's part of the argument. But what I wanted to do is respond to him on theological grounds. And, and I say, you know, I admit and understand that Nietzsche himself would just shrug and say, well, I don't believe in God, so this doesn't matter to me. But I think it's important for Christians to be able to, to think through his arguments and then to respond to them as Christians. And really that was the purpose of the whole class. And that's why we focused on Hume and Nietzsche because they're seen as the two, probably the two greatest enlightenment skeptics. And they, they did advance a lot of serious arguments against faith. And so it was nice to actually have the opportunity to think about, okay, what do I do with these arguments? So a lot of Christians, I think, if they're familiar with anything that Nietzsche wrote, it's got to be that famous God is dead. Mm-hmm. And typically speaking, if we're going to respond to Nietzsche, uh, that's the statement that we're going to try to answer. And you've seen in Christian culture various attempts to do that, some of them more sophisticated, others less. <laughs> I mean, we've had uh, even some some films insisting that God is not dead. That's right. And uh, take that, Nietzsche. <laughs> so I think what I appreciate is that you are taking seriously what it is that he's saying about Christianity and trying to answer those criticisms rather than just sort of a kind of one-upsmanship or gotcha kind of thing. Um, Before we get into Nietzsche's criticism, though, what it is that he takes issue with in Christianity, I'd like to ask you just a little bit about the the way that I came to discover that this essay existed at all, because I wasn't at Princeton with you, and I wasn't reviewing your homework. Uh, You actually published this on Conversant. Explain for our listeners what Conversant is. Yeah, so it's a Substack newsletter. And the pitch, I guess, is that it's about building a poetic life. This is the phrase that I'm using. Uh, listeners might know that I, I write some poetry. So some of what I write about on the newsletter is poetry and poetics, but it's not just that. I'm after sort of a, the bigger a, the bigger view of the creative life. And that's, that's what the newsletter is all about. So. Yeah. I mean, I think if I were describing conversant to people, I would say that the the thing that kind of brings a lot of it together is it, it's it's like artistic formation and spiritual formation yeah. blended together. Yeah, you know, and it, so in one sense, it's a chronicle of your own journey and thought processes, but on another level, it's it's an artist speaking to larger questions and concerns that mm-hmm. that we're all interested in, and so. Yeah. I always appreciate when you update Conversant. And if you're not familiar with Substack or you've never checked out Conversant before, I'm going to put a link in the show notes so that you can find this particular piece. And that'll allow you also to find Cameron's Substack and you can subscribe to Conversant and get updates whenever more material is published. So Cameron, in a nutshell, what is Nietzsche's argument or criticism of Christianity? Like what's, what's so bad about Christianity? It can be summarized with one French word, which I probably can't pronounce very well. Resentiment, Mm. which is resentment, I guess. And for him, Christianity is really so bad ultimately because it's a, 
it's a renouncement of life. It's a negation. Mm. Christianity is a negation of like reality for him. Yeah. And I guess re- resentment, I got that wrong. Resentment is, is one example of that. The bigger, the bigger problem for him is that Christianity negates reality in, in all kinds of ways. And, and he just, he wants people to, to see the kind of escapism that he mm-hmm. sees in Christianity. But so there are two examples that I give in, in the, the essay. The one is that resentment, which is he looks, he looks back at history and he goes all the way back to ancient Israel, in fact, and looks at some of the, even the Psalms and says, look at these, these poor Israelites and how they just despise the, their enemies. They despise the people that have power over them. And you can think of the imprecatory Psalms praying for God to, you know, destroy your enemies essentially. And, and he thinks what happened through that history is that these people were oppressed so much that they, they looked at their enemies and said, you guys are evil, which must mean we're good. We're the victim. You're the perpetrator or whatever. And that was in his mind, in his telling of the story, kind of like the genesis of good and evil, where they just sort of made it up. The people that were being oppressed defined everything that was oppressing them as that's evil and were the poor good people. And then there spawned this kind of resentment for essentially anything that oppresses you. And for Nietzsche, this is so sad because he thinks that, you know, his other famous idea is the will to power. And for him, the will to power is is actually the the height of life that you should be able to express your will however you see fit that this is what humans should do and he looks at greek and roman culture and gladiators and such and those sorts of cultures for him are the are the example for how you should live your life you should dominate others if you need to you should strive for this this um, embrace of life and the resentment that he sees in ancient Israel and then in Christians is the opposite of that. He sounds a little bit like a manosphere podcaster. <laughs> exactly. A little bit. Yeah. Um, but so, so yeah, there are a lot of threads there. Um, is this the thing that Nietzsche calls like the slave mentality? Yes. Is that yeah. the, so this, it's like a mindset of the underdog who kind of flips the script and, and decides yeah. that because I'm weak, I'm going to say weakness is good. Mm-hmm. And because you're strong, I'm going to say strength is bad. Yeah. And, and that's what he means by that. And I mean, there is something to that, right? That, that people will often point to the way that in the Western world, we admire underdogs and say that's a result of Christianity's influence, that in the classical world, they admired strength. Mm-hmm. You know, Achilles is a hero in the classical world because he's strong and, and he doesn't, you know, take nothing from no one. And, and he lives life on his own terms and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And we look at him and see petulance and immaturity and, and you know, a, a lack of Christian virtue. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the point, that Christianity has somehow undermined the natural values of the world and, and made these really contemptible things in the eyes of the classical world 
into virtues. Yeah. Something like that. Exactly. I mean, if you just look at the Jesus Sermon on the Mount, I think that's the prime example saying, blessed are the meek, blessed mm -hmm. are the poor in spirit, blessed are the humble. And Nietzsche is just like, what? Like, no, that's all upside down. And yeah. So the renunciation of life, it's, it's not just like Christianity doesn't let you have fun, right? It's not just saying, well, well, we're taking these vices off the table and, yeah. and you'll have to live, you know, a, a, a clean living sort of lifestyle. It's, it's deeper than that. Yeah. yeah. It's because for, for Nietzsche, again, the height of human expression is this kind of will to power. He actually likens the ideal human to an artist who has no, you know, moral script from the outside and just creates reality, how he sees fit. Mm. And, and that's a sort of a power play at all times. And Christianity, he thinks, is resentful of that kind of power, essentially of all power, and is questioning power. And, and instead, yeah, props up these sort of humble virtues, virtues like forgiveness, and says, no, these are actually the good things. And all of you powerful people, you're, you're bad. Yeah. So I think the... Like the, okay, so the thing I want to get behind, so we have this uh, slave mentality, and, and that's bad in Nietzsche's mind, that Christianity has subverted like natural values or something like that. And um, he has another big criticism of Christianity that you put your finger on as well that has to do with its attitude towards the world. Yeah, basically that if you live that sort of Christian life, of resentment towards the powerful, the culmination of that is a kind of full scale rejection of the world itself. And by the world, I mean, it can mean a lot of things, I guess, but I think for Nietzsche, it really meant like the physical world. It meant, it meant the body, it meant the body's functions like sex and society, you know, politics, all kinds of things that we would associate with the world. Christians give those things up, Nietzsche says, for some, some other world like heaven is kind of the thing. So that they have to, to, to make sense of their life of suffering here as they're being oppressed, maybe. They have to invent a new world where they will finally win in the end. Mm. And that's called yeah, heaven for Christians. And, but he sees that as a rejection of this world. You have actually have to forsake everything that's going on in this world to get there. And for him, that's a shame. Yeah. It is ironic, I think, that he's criticizing Christianity for essentially taking people who are at the bottom and putting them at the top. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if, he were reading Marx, he would need to acknowledge that that's something like winning the class struggle yeah. in a little bit. You know, if, if the slave mentality somehow leads you to, to overturn the world and to reestablish kind of yourself at the top, that would be um, kind of an amazing victory. And, and, and honestly, 
a script that I think we often try to follow in the 21st century, right? When it comes to righting wrongs, uh, our first impulse is often to rewrite the perception of things, right? To change the language that we talk about things in so that the things we want to condemn are, are, you know, painted as morally bad. Yeah. And oftentimes are things that it sounds as if Nietzsche would prefer that we celebrate, right? And maybe that's just a testament to the heart of the problem from his point of view, which is that even our post-Christian culture, which believes it is so diametrically opposed to Christianity, is still operating with very Christian ways of thinking and sort of structural, the, 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 the structural mind of our culture is still Christian, even if the content of its faith is not. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that was his biggest fear <laughs> is that I think that's what motivated much of his philosophy, frankly, was he looked around at, you know, enlightenment Europe and was like, well, y'all don't really profess mm-hmm. like Orthodox faith anymore but you're still kind of living like it. And let me show you what it would look like if we philosophized with the hammer is his phrase, you know, let me show you what it would really mean if we actually got all the presuppositions out that I know all those Christian side effects. And then this is what life could be like. But so he, he, you know, he called for that. He wanted that to happen and it never did. And so that's when, when he says God is dead, Mm -hmm. that's what he's trying to get at that, that, None of the philosophers believe God exists. Mm-hmm. Nietzsche doesn't think God is real and someone actually killed him. He's talking about the idea yeah. of God that we are are acknowledging now that, mm-hmm. that there is no God, but we're still living as if there is one. Yeah. The philosophers are trying to find something to put in God's place. Uh, Terry Eagleton in his book, Culture and the Death of God, talks about this, that philosophy in the age of atheism, you know, the enlightenment, let's say, is looking for placeholders, substitutes that uh, can be um, put in the empty space where God used to be. Um, Art with a capital A in the romantic period, reason with a capital R, uh, because they're afraid that if we acknowledge the absence of God, there's no basis for moral behavior any longer. Mm-hmm. And so there will be dire consequences. And I think what makes Nietzsche, if nothing else, uh, disarmingly honest, mm-hmm. is that he's not trying to avoid the logical consequences of his beliefs. He, he actually wants to see yeah. the chaos ensue. If there's going to be chaos, he'd rather... He'd rather live in a, a dog-eat-dog world than to live a lie. Yeah, And so th- that's, I think, worth thinking about for, for Christians who are often, because of that God is dead thing, very dismissive of Nietzsche. At least give him credit yeah. for being one of the few people to <laughs> reject God who actually comes to recognize the implications of that rejection and everything you've got to get rid of if you're going to get rid of God. I mean, he's willing to get rid of um, transcendent meaning. He's willing to get rid of uh, some kind of, you know, lawgiver morality and that sort of thing and willing to live in a world where 
having the power to oppress others makes you good, not evil. And so, um, again, I mean, there's always the danger, I think, in saying that, that you're, you're constructing a caricature. And I don't want to do that because, you know, I'll acknowledge Nietzsche is smarter than me. And uh, I'm, I'm by no means an expert, but I think that um, gives us at least a good handle on the contours of the criticism. So yeah. Christianity rejects life. And, and I think uh, it's probably fair, don't you think, that to say that a lot of people hearing this would say, yeah, that's basically right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's true. Like Christians do uh, have a lot of resentment. And they do have this sort of anti-world idea. Mm -hmm. And when people are suffering, they tell them to think of the reward they will have in the life to come Mm -hmm. instead of fixing this world. When, uh, you know, they, they disagree with your morality, they try to brand it as immoral and suppress it you know all of those things i think are are criticisms that a person listening might say well nietzsche's got a point Uh so how do you answer that like how do you get out of the 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 noose that that nietzsche is tied around christianity here yeah i mean i just want to reiterate what you just said i really do think that if i would have read nietzsche 10 years ago instead of five years ago, I would have been mortified because I think my view of Christianity would have been such that <laughs> I would have found his arguments devastating. Like, oh my gosh, you're right. Like, that's what we're doing and and I've got it all wrong. But so what I ended up doing in the in that essay was thinking about how, in particular, the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ informs our theology and informs our theological responses to Nietzsche. And so if the two points are, yeah, one that essentially Jesus's values and virtues of the kingdom of God are unnatural and, and subversive and wrong and sick, even he would say there's a kind of sickness. That's the first point. And then the second point is if, Christians therefore despise the world. Well, what does the what does the resurrection mean? And so trying to respond to both of those. The first one is essentially to say, well, if if again, it's kind of a presupposition that Nietzsche wouldn't even accept, but if, let's say, Jesus really rose from the dead bodily, and what does that mean? The first thing I think it means is that God vindicates Jesus's life and his ministry and his entire project of the kingdom of God. So everything he taught is kind of vindicated in that moment. Everything that he stood for, everything that he was preaching is validated in that sense. And so what do you mean by validated? Yeah. I mean, well, so Nietzsche, Nietzsche is like, well, Christians think forgiveness is a virtue. No, it's not. It's, it's weakness. So Jesus says, well, yeah, no, it is, you know, you should, you should forgive your enemies. You should love your enemies. So who's right? Mm -hmm. Guess what I was trying to say is that when, when God rose Jesus from the dead, in a sense, he was, he was 
vindicating his, he was not vindicate. Maybe that's not the right word. He was approving of his entire, his entire kingdom message. So is it kind of the contrast like uh, at the crucifixion when uh, they're mocking Jesus and they're saying, Hey, you know, if, if you would get down off the cross, then I would believe you. Yeah. You know, these are words that Mm -hmm. are coming from like chief priests and scribes. Yeah. And the implication is that his crucifixion is invalidating what he's taught. Yeah. That, that if if what you said was true, then this wouldn't be happening to you. Yeah. So if that's the way that they treat his death, then his resurrection has kind of the opposite effect, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's affirming the truth. I, I get what you're saying there. So as a baseline, I guess that the, that if we if we take the Doctrine of the resurrection, that's an affirmation of the truth, the veracity of what Jesus taught on these things mm-hmm. that Nietzsche is criticizing. Yeah. And and part of that teaching is that power doesn't have the ultimate say in life, you know, that love triumphs, that humility really is a you know, is a good. And all of those things are are vindicated when Jesus rises from the dead. And I think, you know, death would be the ultimate will to power. The death is the ultimate Ubermensch, you know. Mm. And and when Jesus rises from the dead, he conquers death, we, you know, Christians believe. So I think there's a lot more that I could say there, but didn't. But that in a sense I'm saying, well, if G- if Nietzsche's critiquing Jesus's kingdom project, when Jesus, when God rose him from the dead, Nietzsche was proved wrong. Let's say. Yeah, I mean, here's something that you wrote that I found really compelling. It has to do with the way that the resurrection, like if we build on that foundation, that the resurrection validates the teaching of Jesus. It also undermines Nietzsche's account of what he calls slave morality. Right, the way that he sort of frames things is is undermined because, and this is me reading what you wrote here, because Christianity holds that through the resurrection, God vindicated the life and ministry of Jesus with all of its ethical implications, which means, again, I'm skipping ahead a little, but the norms of the kingdom of God do not contradict reality because, as St. Paul taught, Jesus' resurrection from the dead represents a reversal of that which corrupts reality, namely Adam's sin and fall into suffering and death. The resurrection rejects suffering and death as strictly natural. In fact, it calls them utterly unnatural, subverting them by reversing Adam's fall. So Christianity's view of what is natural Mm -hmm. is what's in play there to say that you're rejecting nature presupposes that the way things are represents what is natural, the way th- things ought to be. Yeah. And it, that's the very thing that Christianity rejects. That, yeah. That was one of the needles I was trying to thread in this paper is Nietzsche says part of the, his whole claim is like Christianity just doesn't like what is natural. But like you said, well, one, what is natural? And two, if you can identify that, why is it good? You know, that's a, that's a fallacy just to say that something is because it's natural. It's, it's, it's a good thing. So what I was trying to do there is, 
is point back to the created order of of Genesis 1. And so if that's the ideal world that we lost at the fall, then like Paul says, Jesus is kind of Jesus because he's the second Adam, the new Adam is redeeming that order. So he's he's restoring, I think it's a very reformed thing to say that grace restores nature. And so I don't want to just say that Jesus kingdom virtues are very unnatural, but they're just right. Because there is there's a coherence and a harmony with the way the order that God created in the first place. Yeah. So I mean, I think people who have heard about Nietzsche often know that he's sometimes associated with um, like social Darwinism and yeah. some of those movements in the first half of the 20th century that that um, do take this positive view of power. And it may be easy to forget the connection between that and the way people were thinking about the world and what is real. Um, but what they were trying to do was build morality based on what they saw in nature with the assumption being that what you saw in nature was quote unquote good because that's the way of the world. Um, it's the argument you'll hear people use in other contexts today that, that like if I'm born that way, then it must be right. Right. You know, because if this is the way I was born, then that's natural, i.e. good. Yeah. And so if in the world, the strong dominate the weak, if in the world predators devour their victims, that's good. That's something we should aspire to. It's certainly not something we should judge. And so, um, again, like you, you can hear that and it can sound, um, like so over the top that you're like, well, no one would think something so horrible as that, but, but that is the logical implication mm -hmm. of a view of the world as it is, as natural, mm -hmm. you know, as, as the way that it ought to be. Yeah. And so I, I like the way that you push back against that as needle, as you say, mm -hmm. and, uh, refuse to give that grounds. Um, you also tackle that second point of his, having to do with the hatred of the world. Yes. So here I think I was, if I'm remembering correctly, I think I turned to Oliver O'Donovan, who's an Oxford theologian and ethicist, whom everyone should go check out. His book, Resurrection and Moral, Moral Order, I think is called, was really helpful. But essentially I'm just reiterating what some things that he said. And one of, one of his points in that book is that when God rose am I saying that correctly, <laughs> rose, raised Jesus from the dead. He was again reaffirming the created order from Genesis one in a new way. So we, you know, we're calling it a new creation. Jesus mm -hmm. is, is a new creation, but that God wasn't, God didn't forsake the world though it had fallen into sin, but was seeking to redeem it through through jesus so is it that because jesus is raised bodily that Certainly, it's not yeah. just uh hey let's get rid of this physical stuff just come be a yes. spirit up here 
he's actually raised physically, hence an affirmation of the goodness of creation. Yeah. And, and as Paul says, he is the, the first fruits, you know, of many, of many brothers. So, but yeah, it is, it is the corporality, the physicalness of his resurrection, which is a sign of the fuller redemption, which is to come the new Jerusalem, which will be a physical restoration of, of all things. And so that's a good way to think about, you know, the so-called otherworldliness of Christianity, that, that the other world that we're talking about is this world. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's been made other than it is now, but that's good. It's been mm-hmm. restored, but it's not an escape into right. some alternate fantasy reality. Yes. Yeah. And, and again, I want to give Nietzsche his due. I think many Christians, certainly during our time, but probably, I mean, certainly during his and still during our time, do see salvation as a kind of escapism right. from this world, that this world, and we've talked about this many times in the podcast, but this world is fallen and most of the people in it are corrupt and God saves a few and we, we lucky few get to go to heaven. And the resurrection counters that. It says it's God's yes to the world as maybe that's a, a Bardian way of saying it. God, God affirms the world in the resurrection and it's not an affirmation of the world's sin. I'm try, I try to make some of those qualifications. God's not just saying yes to everything. Everything's fine now, but yes to the way that things were meant to be and to the, the restoration that's to come with the, the new Jerusalem again. Well, I think that's the significance to using the resurrection mm-hmm as the basis of this answer, right? I think there are other doctrines, other ways, other angles that you could take to answer aspects of Nietzsche's critique. But what makes this one so powerful is that it's teasing out the implications of the resurrection and the physicality, you know, what it means that that we aspire to a bodily resurrection uh, all of that, I think, is representative of the best of Christianity, right? As you say, there are Christians, certainly, who have a more Gnostic vision of the life to come. And, you know, I think of, of N.T. Wright's remark that uh, trying to share the gospel without bodily resurrection is something like trying to sell cars without engines, but we act as if it's selling cars without air conditioning. You know, that the bodily resurrection is this very sort of secondary, uh, not so important thing. But in fact, as you can see here, as you think about how it answers these criticisms, it's, it's, it's quite central to a, a good understanding of Christianity. So I think that's a good place to kind of, uh, wrap this up because it, it's kind of where you end in your paper because you suggest that even though the resurrection gives us powerful resources to uh, answer Nietzsche, um, that there is still something about this critique of his that it would be important for us to take on board. And kind of the the lines you tease out have to do with that question, I guess we could say, like, are we practicing what we preach in a sense? Basically. You know, are we actually living these things or is the way we live 
what creates the character that Nietzsche is actually basing his critique on. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so Nietzsche has this ideal, virtuous, ubermensch character who, you know, his chief virtue is this deep affirmation and ascending vision of life. And it's just this triumphant type of character and, you know, very violent, of course. But there was something about that that was appealing to me, that that idea of a, of a figure who can affirm the goodness of the life he's been given. And, and I wanted to say, I think that the resurrection actually allows us to do that in a really profoundly deep way, actually, that, that we can say, we can affirm the goodness of the life we've been given, the life that is to come as well. And... And at the very end, too, I try to make some qualifications about how it also enables us to, to think about suffering and sin without despair mm. because of the promise of, of restoration, which is, you know, central to salvation. So, yeah, I guess I wanted to leave people with that question. Like, do you, do you actually live this way? Are Christians living this way? And I think that was the, the big problem that I saw in Nietzsche was he... He didn't really get Christianity like I think the Bible teaches it. But he was probably looking around at Christians during his day and was probably reading them accurately. So so that's the challenge for us is to to ask, like, am I living the implications of the resurrection in my own life? Am I kind of a resentful person towards others? Or am I living joyfully in the in the power of the resurrection and in the hope of of the restoration that's to come. Is that, is that helpful at all? Or I think it really is. And I think it's especially helpful right now. You know, this episode is coming out on good Friday with Easter right around the corner. As we are celebrating the resurrection, it's easy to think that this is only about the life to come. Uh, and yet it does have implications for how we live our faith now. If we're going to live, as you say, lives fueled by resentment, or if we're going to live lives where we see the goodness of the world and what God has done for us, that that makes a big difference, you know, so that we live a, a true and authentic Christianity that isn't susceptible to these criticisms. I think that's a, a good thing. So this Easter... As we contemplate the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, we don't need to feel too much anxiety when we see the criticisms leveled against him because we know that his resurrection gives us an answer to those things and it's one that affirms the goodness of the world that God made and the goodness of the redemptive work that is transforming it. Thanks for listening to the commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.